Our call to worship this morning comes from Psalm 19. The law of the Lord is perfect. It gives new strength. The commands of the Lord are trustworthy, giving wisdom to those who lack it. The laws of the Lord are right, and those who obey them are happy. The commands of the Lord are just, and give understanding to the mind. Reverence for the Lord is good, it will continue forever. The judgments of the Lord are just, they're always fair. They are more desirable than the finest gold. They are sweeter than the purest honey. Our opening hymn of worship this morning is going to appear on the screen. It's also on the sheet. Uh, We're having a bit of a golden oldie fest this week, which seems kind of appropriate. And any Methodists will be pleased to note that we have two Wesley hymns, which kind of fits with the theme, as you will see as we go along. But we're going to begin by singing Worship the Lord in the Beauty of Holiness. And if you're able and would like to, you're invited to stand as we sing. we're going to come to God now in prayer and as is customary I will lead us in a reasonably short prayer and after that you are invited to join together if you would like to in the Lord's Prayer and as always it is just a delight to hear the mix of languages we're going to get some Hungarian, Lithuanian, oh no Yoruba today, some Welsh um, at least and if any other languages are familiar to you or your first languages, please feel free to use them. Or you can do it in a language that's not your first language, just to fool me. But whatever language is comfortable and whatever version of the prayer is familiar. So let's pray. 
We worship you, God who is permanently faithful. Whether we are awake or asleep, you hold us safe in the embrace of your love. Whether we are deserving or undeserving, you renew that love with each new day. Whether we recognise it or not, you are always with us. We worship you, God who is wholly dependable. For our unquestioning certainty that the laws of nature are reliable and predictable. For our experience of order and pattern rather than chaotic randomness. For our detection of your spirit's activity creating stability. We worship you, God who is utterly trustworthy, safe to express to you our deepest fears and most anxious concerns, safe to admit to you our worst failings and biggest regrets, safe from the sting of sin and death through the work of Christ. We worship you, God in whom all virtue is completed, source of our being, goal of our seeking, eternal one whose transforming work of grace we participate within as we pray together saying, Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name, thy kingdom come. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day the bread of bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trust us against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, the power, and the glory, forever.
Yes, I can, suddenly, yes, I can. Gee, I'm afraid to go on has turned into, yes, I can. Take a look, what do you see? 133 pounds of confidence, me. Got the feeling I can do anything, yes, I can. Something that sings in my blood is telling me, yes, I can. some people who like who like sweets who like to come at the front and see what I've got in my three dishes. Got three dishes of sweets. You don't have to be a child, you can be a grown-up who likes sweets. I've got plenty to go round. Who wants to come and have a look? Go on, Fergus. And I want you to look at each bowl and I want you to choose the one that you would like the best, but don't eat it. You've just got to hold it. That's really cruel, isn't it? So which, we've got three kinds of sweets. Have a look, see which one you like best, and just choose that one and hold it for a moment so we can show everybody what you've chosen. Just talk amongst yourselves, because this is a bit of a hard task, really, to suddenly have all these sweeties to choose from. Well done, Sarah. Those are jelly babies. Those are Haribos, and those are licorice all sorts. I'll get one that I like. Okay, has everybody got one that they like, but they're not going to eat it? Right, I want you to turn around so that everybody can see what you've got. And Okay, Sarah, what have you got? Orange jelly babies. And why do you like orange jelly babies? Um, I like the orange. You like the orange? Okay. A green jelly baby. Because? They're just my favourite ones. It's your favourite one, very good. And what have you got, Sam? A red jelly baby. Yeah, that's okay. But you didn't know what it was, but it thought it looked interesting. What have you got, Max? A green jelly baby. You've got a green, but yours is a different jelly baby, isn't it? Because yours hasn't got the icing sugar on the outside. What have you got, Merida? You've got a spotty licorice all sorts. Licorice all sorts like that. These are my favourite licorice all sorts because I, I like the aniseedy flavour. Um, right, um, Fergus, you might have to come to me and sh- show what you've got and show everybody. I like the milk. The Haribo milk bottles because I like the milky taste. You like the milky taste? Fantastic. Um, what have you got? You've got an orange jelly baby. What have you got? Um, a yellow Haribo. Uh-huh, why's that? Because I like yellow. Like That seems a good reason. Um, Amelia, what have you got? 
Um, a red Haribo. Uh -huh. Is there a reason for that one? Do you like red one? Is red your favourite colour or do you just um, thought I it was like interested? cherry and strawberry. You like cherry and strawberry? Good answer. Bonnie, what have you got? Bonnie's got the same. I actually chose it for oh, her. All right. Uh, but yeah, she likes strawberry and she's already started eating it. Okay, that's all right. And Kathy. Uh, I'm not sure what it is, but it just looked nice. Looks nice. Okay. Try something new. Okay, so which is the best sweet? Who thinks they've got the best sweet there? Everybody thinks they've got the best sweet. Do you think that's right, congregation? Do you think it's right that everybody's got the best sweet? I think it is right, isn't it? Just because they're different doesn't mean that one's better. Just because one's round and one's long and one's red or one's blue doesn't mean that one's better. All are different and all are equally yummy. So thank you very much for your help. You can go and sit down and eat those one sweets because I don't want to be in too much trouble with mums and dads. And maybe later on uh, the grown-ups will polish them off. But we're going to watch another little video now to remind us that each of us has something of equal value that might be different, and what matters is what we choose to do with it. When I was young, people judged me. They pushed me to live life with purpose. What drives me now is different. The medals, the records, I'd swap them all to inspire others. To discover their energy within. Forget what you can't. Be defined by what you can. Forget what you can't. Be defined by what you can. If you're a red jelly baby, be a great red jelly baby. If you're a blue licorice all sort, be a good blue licorice all sort. If you're a yellow Haribo, be a good yellow Haribo. Be you. Be the best you you can be. And that's all that matters. Doesn't matter how anybody out there judges you. Doesn't matter if you can jump higher or not as high. Doesn't matter if you can sing beautifully or you sing like a crow. What matters is you be you and you be you the best you can be. Because here's the thing. God made each one of us just right, because God needed one person, just like each one of us. Who we are is who God meant us to be. So we're going to sing a really old uh, song. I used to sing in Sunday school. I've slightly rewritten it because the words were just so old-fashioned. Um, but hopefully some of the grown-ups at least will recognise the tune. Just as I am, your own to be, friend of the young who first loved me.
first reading today is taken from Proverbs chapter 8, verses 1 to 7. Does not wisdom call, and does not understanding raise her voice? On the heights, beside the way, at the crossroads she takes her stand. Beside the gates, in front of the town, at the entrance of the portals she cries out. To you, O people, I call, and my cry is to all that live. O simple ones, learn prudence. Acquire intelligence, you who lack it. Hear, for I will speak noble things, and from my lips will come what is right. For my mouth will utter truth. Wickedness is an abomination to my lips. And the second reading is a selection from the book of James. If any of you is lacking in wisdom, ask God, who gives it to all generously and ungrudgingly, and it will be given to you. But ask in faith, never doubting, for the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea, driven and tossed by the wind. For the doubter, being double-minded and unstable in every way, must not expect to receive anything from the Lord. Be doers of the word, and not merely hearers who deceive themselves. For if any are hearers of the word and not doers... They are like those who look themselves in a mirror, for they look at themselves and, on going away, immediately forget what they were like. But those who look into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and persevere, not being hearers who forget, but doers who act, they will be blessed in their doing. Someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith without works, and I by my works will show you my faith. You believe that God is one. You do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. Do you want to be shown, you senseless person, that faith without works is barren? Was not our ancestor Abraham justified by works when he offered his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith it was active along with his works and that faith was brought to completion by the works. Thus the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God and it was reckoned to him as righteousness, and he was called the friend of God. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. Likewise, Rahab the prostitute was also justified by works when she welcomed the messengers and sent them out by another road. For just as the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without works is also dead. Not many of you should become teachers, my brothers and sisters, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. For all of us make many mistakes. Anyone who makes no mistakes in speaking is perfect, able to keep the whole body in check with a bridle. If we put bits into the mouths of horses to make them obey us, we guide their whole bodies. Or look at ships. They are so large that it takes strong winds to drive them. Yet they are guided by a very small rudder, wherever the will of the pilot directs. So also the tongue is a small member, yet it boasts of great exploits. How great a forest is set ablaze by a small fire, and the tongue is a fire. The tongue is placed among our members as a world of iniquity. It stains the whole body, sets on fire the cycle of nature, and is itself set on fire by hell. For every species of beast and bird, of reptile and sea creature, can be tamed, and has been tamed by the human species, but no one can tame the tongue a restless evil full of deadly poison. With it we bless the Lord and Father, and with it we curse those who are made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth come blessing and cursing. My brothers and sisters, this ought not to be so. Does not a spring pour forth from the same opening both fresh and brackish water? Can a fig tree, my brothers and sisters, yield olives, or a grapevine figs? No more can salt water yield fresh. Who is wise and understanding among you? Show by your good life that your works are done with gentleness born of wisdom. If you have bitter envy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not be boastful and false to the truth. Such wisdom does not come down from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, devilish. For where there is envy and selfish ambition, there will also be disorder and wickedness of every kind. But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, willing to yield, full of mercy and good fruits, without a trace of partiality or hypocrisy. And a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace for those who make peace.
So it's just over a week since the Rio Olympic Games ended. Uh, sports people representing Great Britain and Northern Ireland got the highest number of medals ever, finishing second overall behind the USA. I think that's right. And they were a lot of celebration, wasn't there, of what's been achieved. But it made me wonder, which is the bigger achievement to get a gold medal or to break a world record? To get a medal of any colour or to achieve a personal best, even if you come last? And around about the same time, the A-level results for students predominantly in Wales, Northern Ireland, England, although a few in Scotland, were published. And I got drawn into a little thread on social media with a number of other Baptist ministers. And we posted our A-level results from many years ago. And a few people posted that they didn't do A-levels many years ago. What really struck me was that the person who began the thread and a number of those who joined in had got PhDs or master's degrees or certainly degrees and most of us had not exactly got brilliant A-levels. My BCDE, all passes by the way, uh, was fairly typical, not an A to be seen on my A-levels. And I remembered the huge disappointment I felt the day that my A-level results came because I hadn't got the grades for my provisional offer at university. And I also remember the relief I felt when I was accepted anyway. And as many of you know, the story is I got a first-class honours degree in engineering out of it, so there we go. But in a society that seems to be driven by a particular understanding of success where perfection is getting a gold medal, scoring 10 for your dance on Strictly, getting straight A-star grades or whatever system they're using this week, it's hardly surprising that when faced with the idea that the likes of Charles Wesley and others throughout history have termed Christian perfection, that we feel inadequate. So, before we start to look at what James has to say, I think we do well to spend a few moments reminding ourselves that what's being talked about here is not about passing an exam. It's not about a standard to be achieved or an ability that you have to do. Getting 100% in a Bible quiz or, or praying longer than anybody else is not a measure of perfection at least not in the way the Bible and Christianity through most of history has understood it. The Wesleyan holiness tradition, like the Bible, sees perfection as a process of becoming who we really are, who in Christ we have the potential to become, who it is that God made us to be. And so it actually carries a sense of completion, of fulfilment, of wholeness. And I dare to suggest allows for a degree of diversity. Such an understanding is far closer to what would have been understood in Jesus' day than it is for us in the 21st century in the wealthy West Northern Hemisphere. But I hope this understanding is quite liberating that rather than perfection being an impossible target for which we strive, most people will never get 100% in a university maths exam or whatever it might be. That's not what perfection is. Rather, perfection is a growth in grace and love as God's spirit works within us. So if we try to hold that in mind, this idea of perfection as growing, becoming, fulfilling then we will do well as we begin to look at what James has to say. In Matthew's Gospel, Jesus is recorded saying this, Be perfect just as your heavenly Father is perfect. But what does that mean and how should we read or interpret it? James's understanding of God's perfection 
It's firmly rooted in the nature of God who is utterly dependable and whose essence is unchanging. In, as he says, in whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Perhaps we're reminded of Thomas Chisholm's old song, Great is thy faithfulness, O God my Father, there is no shadow of turning in thee. So perfection then, as consistency, reliability, dependability. I don't know about you, but when I get into conversations with people who want to try and argue against the existence of God, they ask me questions like this one. Well then, Katrina, can God create a rock that's too heavy for God to lift? The hypothesis being that if God is omnipotent or powerful, then God can surely create such a rock. Ha! But if God can't pick the rock up, then God isn't all-powerful after all, and poof, God vanishes in a puff of smoke. But that's just a daft question, isn't it? Because what it actually boils down to is, can God do something God can't do? Or can God do something that is inconsistent with God's very nature? For the writer of James and for thinking Christians throughout the ages, has been an understanding that God can do anything that is consistent with God's unchanging nature. It seems that in God, love and mercy and grace and judgment and anger and even, it would appear, changes of mind are part of a consistent whole. Read the Old Testament, and there do seem to be times when God's mind is changed, yet God's essence does not. Or as the hymn writer puts it, Thou changest not, thy compassions they fail not. As thou hast been, thou forever wilt be. In the letters of the church, Colossae, Paul speaks of Jesus saying that in him the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. When we seek to discover what God's perfection might look like, then we need look no further than Jesus. And perhaps if we think back to the vine image from John's Gospel we looked at a couple of weeks ago, it is as we abide in Jesus Christ, as we rest in him, as we live in him, dwell in him, and hence in God that we experience something of this completion and find ourselves being made complete. It's perhaps not a great surprise that given that he was writing for a Jewish audience, close attention is given in James to the law and specifically to the Ten Commandments that lie at the heart of the Torah. But again, we need to remind ourselves that we are conditioned in the way that we read these from the way that the church, through almost 2,000 years, has understood and interpreted those laws. The church has ignored contextual factors. It's overlooked the nuances within those laws. And boy, has it got fixated on a few verses. If you can find a verse about sex, then let's just get fixated on it. And the trouble is, as a result of that fixation and the way we've read it, we miss out things like James says, that those who look into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and persevere, being not hearers who forget but doers who act, they will be blessed in their doing. He also says, believers are to speak and act as those who are going to be judged measured by the law of liberty. Judgment without mercy will be shown to anyone who has no mercy. Mercy triumphs over justice. Judgment, sorry. A perfect law, then, is a law that, if properly understood, helps us to become complete and whole. It's liberating. It's a law that gives us freedom to be who we are made to be. 
Such a law isn't a list of commands so long and so complicated we couldn't possibly recall, never mind comply with it. And it cannot be, surely, what it has become for both Christians and Jews through the centuries, a burden or a snare. A means of excluding those we perceive as the other, a means of subjugating and demeaning those who are less powerful or more vulnerable. No. James says the perfect law that gives liberty is something we can do and we can know. It's what Jesus said when Jesus was asked, well, what's the law? He said, you love God with all your heart, all your mind, all your soul and all your strength. Love your neighbour as you love yourself. That's small enough to remember, isn't it? There's no weird traps in there. Nothing too contextual there. But of course, it's much easier to learn that off by heart and recite it than it is to let it penetrate our innermost beings so that we find our freedom and our fulfilment. And I think that's why mercy is so important. God is endlessly merciful to us. Therefore, we too should be merciful to others and we should be merciful to ourselves. I know I have a terrible habit of beating myself up and I've had people telling me for seven years to stop doing it that you know of, let's say more like 50 years in reality. But what we are told is that mercy triumphs over judgment and that's our own judgment of ourselves our own judgment of others, and God's judgment. All of it should be over... um, Mercy should be over all of that. And if we believe that's true, if we believe that this is a law of liberty, and if as Baptists we accept the statement in our Declaration of Principle that each church has the freedom under God's Holy Spirit to interpret and administer Christ's law then that importance of mercy over judgment is really obvious, isn't it? Because it means we have to have a healthy humility, entertaining the possibility that we in our church might be wrong, and they in their church might be right, whilst they in their church have to entertain the possibility that they might be wrong, and we in our church might be right. God's work of completion is a process and it's active. It's active within those with whom we disagree as well as those with whom we agree. And I think if we accept that, we find ourselves freed from unhealthy reactions and therefore allowed to become who we are, who God has called and made us to be, And not worry about them, or them, or them. So God is perfect, totally reliable, totally dependable, utterly consistent in essence, complete and whole. And the law is perfect, liberating us from impossible, unquestioning rule following, and empowering us to live lives that are more fully human and more enriching. But what does that mean? in real life what does it mean for us to become complete to be perfected I think in James we find three interrelated elements to this firstly in relation to faith faith is a key theme with which the letter begins and ends and which is illustrated by reference to two Old Testament characters And what an interesting choice we have here. There's Abraham, the great father of Israel, the one that any self-respecting Jew would trace themselves back to. And then there's Rahab, you know, the harlot who wasn't even Jewish, but who protected the Hebrew spies. See, faith isn't just a matter of knowing the right things. We could learn the Bible off by heart. Well, you might be able to, I couldn't. We could become a world authority on some obscure aspect of Christian theology or doctrine and 
That wouldn't be faith. And nor is faith a matter of the right ritual. We could respond to an altar call week after week, and trust me, some people do. We can be baptised, we can make professions of faith, we can be stalwarts of the church, and we still don't really have faith. Faith, according to the letter to the Hebrews, is being sure of what we hope for and certain of what we do not see. In other words, it's an attitude, an approach to life that is glimpsed, among many others, in Abraham, whose story shows us a man who was hugely flawed. At least twice he claimed his wife was his sister. He lied, he cheated, he did all sorts of stuff. And Rahab, the person perhaps we wouldn't have expected. So faith is completed not in knowledge, but in living. As our experience shapes and is shaped by our understanding of God, the two relate to each other, inform each other. So completion in faith, perfection in faith. But also deeds. Faith without deeds is dead, says James, more than once, in fact. And as you know, that's probably my favourite verse in the whole Bible. Whilst it's quite clear that the community to which he is... uh, Sorry, it's quite clear that the community of which he's writing to, one of the key concerns is the relationship between the haves and have-nots. And we're going to look at that more next time. But there's a general principle here, I think, that we need to note both within the church and beyond the church. As I think I mentioned a couple of weeks ago, I've gone back and revisited a set of sermons I did back in 2003 in a middle-class church in a leafy suburb of South Manchester. And that was a church that rightly prided itself on its work. It had a day centre for older people, I think three days a week. It had a toddler group, I think another three days a week. It had lots of children's work. It was passionate about issues of justice, about fair trade, environmental matters, and so on. But it was a troubled church in many ways. In that sermon, I observed that what had challenged me most about this was a line from James that spoke of the absurdity of pious platitudes spoken within the local congregation. This church in Manchester was doing fantastic stuff outside the congregation, but had some issues inside the congregation. And for those of you who like to think what you think I might be thinking, there are no issues I'm aware of in this congregation, so please don't think that's what I'm saying. What James said to them was this, if a brother or sister is naked and lacks daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, keep warm and eat your fill, and yet does not supply their bodily needs, what's the good of that? That really challenged me then, and it challenges me still, because it asks me to ask myself, what do I really know about what's going on in the lives of the people in this church. Do I really ask? Do I really want to know? And if I ask, do I really listen to find out? And do I reply with anything more helpful than this kind of example that James gives? Well, that's all right. Keep well, keep warm. God's love, it'll be fine. How many of the people in this church do we each know the names of? I think I'm allowed to ask that because people regularly ask me who somebody's name is. If you're new, that's allowed. If you've been here 30 years, well, hmm. But beyond that, do we know what people do for a living or did do for a living? Might there be real practical needs that people have and, and they either dare not or will not speak about? I wonder if there's a possibility for each of us to get to know somebody a little bit better in the church. Because I think we all love this church. I hope we do. I certainly love it. And it is a loving church. But there's always scope, isn't there, to deepen and broaden that love. 
Perhaps there are some people who could offer a practical expression of love to somebody else. Perhaps there's somebody who's feeling a little bit unloved today. Perhaps there's somebody who could just spot that and share a little bit of love. So perfection in faith, perfection in deeds, and then lastly, perfection in wisdom. This is kind of where we come full circle. This is where we began. There is a worldly wisdom and there's a heavenly wisdom. The worldly wisdom undermines us because of what we're not and the heavenly wisdom builds us up because of what we are. I loved the Olympics. I really enjoyed it. I didn't stay up all night watching it, but I really enjoyed it. And I will love even more the Paralympics. But for all that's good about them, they do give us an example of a worldly wisdom that can still have unhelpful consequences. The driving ambition to be the best on the planet can lead to unhealthy attitudes towards oneself or towards others. Bitterness and resentment over access to facilities and coaches. Envy of the success of others. Cheating, criticising, callous remarks. And the loss of confidence and self-worth when those goals cannot be attained. Not even with a lifetime best. Not even at a huge personal sacrifice. I don't think anybody here is an elite athlete. But I think it's entirely possible, whatever age and stage we are at, that we risk that kind of ambition that is driven by a destructive wisdom. Pushing ourselves beyond what is reasonable. Trying to be what we are not meant to be and becoming bitter and twisted in the process or potentially becoming that way. Rather, we should aspire to the wisdom from above, the perfect, life-giving, wholeness-creating wisdom that is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, willing to yield, full of mercy and good fruits, without a trace of partiality or hypocrisy. That's the goal. To be peaceable, gentle, willing to yield, merciful, without a trace of partiality or hypocrisy. Faith, deeds and wisdom. These three, according to James, are part of what it means to find perfection. To become complete to grow in grace and to be transformed by the love of the unchanging, utterly dependable God and so equipped to live out our lives as followers of Christ. Amen. Love divine or love's excelling, joy of heaven to earth come down. Fix in us your humble dwelling all your faithful mercies crown.
And now let us bring our prayers for others and for ourselves. Let us pray. Dear God, sometimes we ask ourselves, as indeed we did last week, as to why we do come to church. And of course we recall that there are a variety of reasons, including the desire to meet together as a family of your people, the desire to bring to you in prayer our needs and our concerns, the desire to ask for forgiveness for where we have gone wrong, the desire to learn more of your word and of your way. We also come because we know that you have promised that where two or three gather together in your name, you will be there in the midst of them. And so in worship, we we will find your spirit among us to give us power to live out our faith. And of course, that life of faith means that we seek to show forth your love in all our doings, in the rough and tumble of life, in the good times and the bad. And as we learn more of you from your word, we would seek to act as James suggests that we do, being doers of the word and not merely hearers who deceive themselves. And so we are encouraged to show forth our inner faith by our outer actions in the world of daily living, in the mundane tasks of every day, in the joy and conflict of family life, and in work and everyday employment, in our times of confidence and triumph, as well as those times when our spirits are low and all seems against us. And so, dear Father, we would seek first, uh, first of all, that transforming grace that will enable us to demonstrate our loving concern for others, that grace which will help us to guard our tongues against the cheap and easy jibe and the unkind criticism of others, that grace that will enable us to be a support to others as they journey with us through life. Therefore today we bring before you in our hearts all those who suffer at this time. Although we have recently been witness to all the gloss and razzmatazz of the Olympic Games, and indeed we rejoice in the the success of so many elite athletes, we also remember that even in the land of Brazil there are many who live in squalor and distress. We pray that sporting investment and sporting success might be matched with an ongoing impetus to reduce inequality and the huge gap between the rich and the poor in that land and elsewhere. We also pray especially today for those who have been bereaved by the earthquake in Italy this past week. May they be comforted and may all those who seek to bring relief be blessed in their efforts. We think of those in many other parts of the world where disease and poverty are the daily backdrop to millions of lives. And of course we continue to witness the horror of lives torn asunder, children left orphaned, homes destroyed and peace non-existent as a result of the crisis in Syria. Lord, our cry comes out to you in this deepest distress. And we give thanks for all those who indeed live out their faith as they seek to bring relief in what seems an impossible situation. We would pray also for those at home who have suffered bereavement or injury due to accidents or illness, and we think of those washed away on beaches or injured in crashes as they travel at this summertime, bringing healing and blessing, we pray, to all whose lives are now turned upside down by these events. Also at this time of year, we think of those who will have received results of exams and hope to move forward to the next stage of their education or to enter the world of work. We think of many seeking jobs against stiff competition, and we hold them up before you. May they not become dispirited or distressed in their endeavours, and may all who are parents or friends of these young people bring their support in whatever way they can. And soon we come to the month of September, and we would pray again for our own future here at Hillhead. We ask for patience as we hope to reach a conclusion to the uncertainty about our development and unite us together as a family as we expect to move elsewhere during the coming weeks. And so, dear Father, help each one of us to be filled with your spirit and your grace that we may show forth our faith in the world as we live within it and each and every day. Amen.
loving, merciful, dependable, gracious, generous God. We bring these gifts of money. We bring the gifts that you have given us, the skills, the abilities, the opportunities. And we offer all of them to you in the name of Christ. Amen. Forth in your name, O Lord, I go, my daily labour to pursue. You, Lord, alone I long to know in all I think or speak or do. Let us go forth into the world in peace, being of good courage, holding fast to what is good, rendering to no one evil for evil, strengthening those who are faint-hearted, supporting those who are weak, helping those who are afflicted, honouring all people, loving and serving the Lord now and always.